0: And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said to him, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid laid each half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away.
1: As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord.
2: We're continuing, obviously, through our series in the book of Genesis, and when you came in today, you had the opportunity to pick one of these up. We provide these for you. They're sermon guides that kind of track with the series and what's happening. You can use these in your personal devotions. You can take notes. You can use them for questions in your community group. But make sure to grab one of those um, if, you, if you didn't already. Just so you know, our sermon plan here is we're going to be in Genesis through the end of November, and then Advent season hits. Um, and then we'll, we'll be doing that through the end of the year. So this will be the, the last booklet for this, for this go-around before jumping back in in January. But let's be honest, when we come to Genesis 15, this is somewhat of a bizarre text. And by somewhat, I mean it's a bizarre text, okay? That, that's what I mean. And I kept trying to think about creative titles for this sermon. I was tempted to go with strange Bible stories for a 1,000 Alex, um, but I didn't do that. I didn't want to trivialize what I think is one of the most important passages. I'm not using pastoral hyperbole here in the entire Old Testament, if not the Bible. In fact, R.C. Sproul, who's now with the Lord, indicated that this was his favorite passage in all of the Bible. And so we're going to go with peace through the pieces. That's where we're heading this morning. And instead of a series of well-alliterated points Um, We're just going to sort of walk through the text and the passage. I think it's much more conducive, that. But you need to know as we're diving in this morning that fundamentally Abram is dealing with something we all deal with, and that is doubts. Doubts. His faith is being tested. The promises of God have been made, and he's wondering, are these promises really going to happen? Is God really going to come through? It's not that I don't think He can't, but will He for me? And I want us to notice in this passage that because we tend to tend to, to do one of two things with doubts. On one hand, we can either be really condemnatory toward doubting and and see it as a as as a misstep in our journey with Christ. We can see it as a as a point of real weakness or even sinfulness. But we can also, in a postmodern age, elevate our doubts. We can deify them. We can glory in them. In fact, there is a certain hubris about being humble, and we can't be sure about anything, Pastor Paul, and it's arrogant of you to say that we can, and those sorts of things. I want you to know in this text, Moses doesn't go in either of those directions. See, he he doesn't put a microscopic focus on Abram's doubts. But what you will see through the text is that Abraham starts as the prominent character. But over the course of the story, Abraham, or Abram still at this point, grows smaller as God grows bigger. And that's going to always be the ultimate prescription for doubt, is not understanding ourselves better, but understanding God better. You see, by the end of this passage, God is squarely going to take center stage, and Abram is literally a spectator to the divine act of God working and moving and revealing himself. And so that's where we're headed over these next few minutes. Let's dive into verse 1, where Moses indicates that after this, and so of course that should connect us to what we talked about last week, which was Abram's amazing victory, Remember the no-good nephew, Lot, hanging out with uh, the folks of Sodom and Gomorrah and pays for it by being taken captive with them. And Abram rides in, and by God's grace, he conquers um, these nations. He rescues Lot, and it's an amazing victory. But when it says after this, we don't know exactly how long this is, but the, but the sense, I think, is that it's some time. In other words, it's some time has passed because God makes it clear to tell Abram here, look in verse 1, to fear not. Now, why would God say fear not? Okay, there's, you know, this is 101, right? Because Abraham was fearing, right? So some, some time has has passed and God appears to Abram and it was a common practice in that day and still even to this modern time that when you were a conquering king or a victorious commander and you would come back in victory, um, you were sort of met by accolades, an entourage. There would be congratulations, there would be a proclamation, there might be even a gift to you for faithful military service. So if you've ever wondered why it's seemingly half the parks and towns and cities in the United States are named Lafayette, okay? well, the Hamilton musical tells us why, right? There's a French officer and a general who fought for the Revolutionary War. He's from France. And after the war, states and cities, oh, this is interesting, didn't just name stuff after Lafayette they actually gifted him things. They gifted him land. They gifted him parks. And of course, he, he was like a land baron across the United States. Okay. So, so this is why we have Lafayette Park. He never saw most of these places, but he laid claim to them. They were given to him as a gift and, and they were turned into parks and those sorts of things or cities. Now in Georgia, they pronounce Lafayette Lafayette. You know this, right? Okay. So if you're from Georgia, you got that one wrong. Sorry. But nonetheless, You get the idea. This is what's happening in the text. Abram's not being met by a bunch of conquering victors. He's being met by the Lord himself. That's the the context here. And God has a word for Abram. He has a tribute. He has a form of assurance and he tells him, fear not. And as we said, Abram's fear was undoubtedly connected to this idea that God had made big promises to him. He was going to have a son, and this son was going to have other people, and they were going to become a great nation, and God was going to bless this nation. But not only that, God was going to bless the whole world through the promise of Abram's seed. And here he is. It would have been a natural time for his coronation, so to speak. But here he waits and God appears. Abram is full of fear and full of doubts. Do you relate at all to that this morning? I, you've heard me say this before. I want to distinguish between two kinds of doubts. I think this is really important. There's, some, there's a kind of doubt that I would call a philosophical or theological doubt. This is, these are apologetic questions like, how do I know Christianity is true, Pastor Paul? How do you... How, Prove to me that that Bible that you have is the Word of God, and, and those, and that's a that's an incredibly fruitful avenue of study. But that's not the kind of doubt I think that Abram is dealing with. See, Abram is dealing with a doubt that I think is much more common, particularly among religious folk, folks who profess Christ. See, this is a problem, an existential kind of doubt. That doesn't doubt whether Christianity is true. It doesn't doubt where the Bible is true or doubt even belief in Jesus Christ. What this doubt is, is it's a doubt about whether that's true for me. God, I know you save. Jesus, I know you died on a cross. I know you save people out there. I'm just not sure I'm one of those. I'm not sure if people really knew me. I don't even really know if I knew myself what I would Fine, God, I'm, I'm, I know you're big and powerful and mighty, but will you save me? Will you be faithful to me? See, I think that's where Abram is. He's wrestling with assurance. And his assurance that he's wrestling with is twofold. One, the first that we see in the text is this lack of a son, God has made this incredible promise, but yet here he has no heir. And now his doubts are pretty self-explanatory. Abram is no fool, right? See, not, not to be too crude or whatever, but Abram and Sarai, they're um, getting in a little too old for this kind of thing. Do you get what I'm saying? They, the biological clock has stopped, and so Abram just assumes, well, God will provide an heir, but it'll just be kind of in the normative human sort of way that that these things happened all through the ages. So in the absence of a son in ancient Near East culture, the the, the inheritance fell to the next um, closest living relative on the father's side who was a son or something like that, which here in the text is Eleazar. We don't hear anything Else about him in the text, only a brief mention here. And by the way, this is the plot line of every Jane Austen novel. You know this, right? So it's the the plot line of all of them. God wants to make it crystal clear to Abram that that's not how it's going to happen. That's not how Abram's seed is going to be propagated. Look at verse 4. The sense of the Hebrew when it says the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall, and the emphasis here is not be your heir. So in other words, Eleazar, not him. There is an emphatic no. It is not going to be through an inheritance from an heir, God tells Abram. It's going to be, and and you can't really see this here in the Hebrew either, but it says here, your very own son. It literally means a son from your own bowels. Okay, try that one out for family devotions around lunch today. Let's talk about children, a family from our own bowels. God's just saying, look, 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 no, no, no. We know you're old. We know you're white. We we, 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 get this whole thing. But when I do this, it is going to be beyond clear who this is from. Now it's interesting, and in through this promise that, and look back at verse one. There's this little, almost a throwaway line. If we're if we're not careful, but he, but God tells Abram, Abram, not only is this going to be your reward, but He says, Abram. I, meaning God, am your shield. In the word there, one who literally protects someone in battle. So Abram, as you move forward and as you are trusting in my promises, you need to know I'm going to be going with you. See, it would be very tempting in Abram's spot to say, you know, my my land and my status... You know, that that that's my inheritance, or that's my reward. Or that or that's or that that's my blessing, that's my shield. That's the thing that's going to protect me, that's the thing that's going to, to go before me. But see, God as Abram's shield indicates to us that regardless of all the other rewards that God is going to give Abram, God is Abram's greatest reward. You see, all of us, church, are waiting on God's reward in something, aren't we? You know, some of us are ready, waiting for God's reward in our marriage. God, just show up in my marriage. And once you work in that way, I'm good. God, show up in this child's life. And once you do that, and once you bring your reward, I'm, I'm going to trust you. God, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting you. I'm looking for reward in my body Some of you may have gotten a diagnosis this week or this season, and you're praying and hoping that God makes himself abundantly present and clear to you through your own health. You know, and sometimes God does give us that reward. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he only gives it in part. Sometimes he doesn't give it in the time that we expect. But Abram must know that regardless of whatever else happens, Abram, as you make this journey, and as you are trusting me, and as Abram is going 10, 20 years sometimes without hearing from the Lord, that Abram, I am your shield. Abram, I am your reward. Folks, where today are you wrestling with God, hoping, praying, expecting, waiting, his movement, his hand in your life in some significant way. You know, sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says not yet, because I want to give you more of myself. Sometimes, and this is so hard, we have to say with Paul, at the end of the day, Paul said, Lord, take all these things from me. But at the end of the day, God said, Paul, all you have is me. All you have is my grace that's going to be, have to be sufficient for you. Paul faced this again at the very end of his life. And we think of all the people who were faithful to God, the apostle Paul, not only was he faithful, he was incredibly fruitful, but he was wasting away in a Roman dungeon. And what does he write to Timothy? He says, Timothy, everyone in Asia Minor has abandoned me. But the Lord Jesus, he stood by me. Where where do you, church, need this morning, this season, to be reminded, just as Abram was, of this vision that God is your ultimate reward? Now, as we continue to move through the text, here is a conundrum for us. When we say that God is our reward— A reward, is it not, is, is by definition something that's earned, right? So you run a race and you put one of those stickers on the back of your car. You know what I'm talking about? Like the 1K, 3K, I saw some obnoxious car. If it's yours, God bless you. He still loves you. Okay, but I saw a car with like 20 of these running stickers on there. 1K, 3K, 5K, 10K, 12K, 26.2, 100.7, triathlon, all that. You got it? My sticker says .1. Okay, that's my sticker. Get it? But we don't get those stick. You know what? I'm just going to start putting those stickers on my car just for fun. All right, just for fun. But see, we, this idea we, we achieve something to get a reward. You get the grades, you get the reward. I was going to say you hoist the trophy, but we're giving everybody a trophy now, right? So that doesn't really count either. But remember, Genesis 2 and 3 tell us very clearly God's economy and how rewards work. What did he tell Adam and Eve? If you walk with me, if you obey me, if you're in communion with me, paradise is yours. Eden is yours. Unbroken, unhindered fellowship is Yours. In other words, reward comes through righteousness. But as we saw in Genesis, Adam and Eve failed. We fail. They are expelled from the garden. We are expelled from the garden. And one thing we've learned, right, is that Abram is anything but righteous. He's done anything but, quote, unquote, earn a reward. Remember a, lot, a few weeks ago when we talked about him going off to Egypt and exposing his wife and his family in the most cowardly way imagined. But yet here, despite the fact that Abram has not been righteous, God says, I am reward. How does that happen? And guys, there's there's fundamentally no more important question that humanity will wrestle with than this one. How, how am I to be made right with God? We all ask that. It may not come in that form, but we're all searching for it. It's the plot of every movie. It's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's tied up in the narrative, the drama of TV shows, of music, of sitcoms, of, of conversations in Starbucks. It infuses everything that we do. How do I make sense? What is my place? How am I made right with what's going on around me in the world? And verse 6 give us, gives us the clearest answer to that we find anywhere in scripture. And by the way, this is one of the most pivotal verses in the Bible. It's quoted by Paul. It's quoted by James. Let's read it together. God has made this promise, and here's what it says in verse 6. And he, meaning Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God, and God counted it counted it to him as righteousness. This is economic, financial, marketplace language. And fundamentally, God is saying, I am going to make an exchange with you, Abram. And here's the exchange. Abram, I know you're not righteous, but here's the deal. If you simply believe in me, if you simply trust in me, if you simply entrust yourself to me, and by the way, the Bible has a word for that. It's called what? Faith. Abraham, if you simply look to me, I will count your faith or I will credit it as righteousness. So I know you're not righteous, and you have no righteousness points in my bank account, but let me, let me explain this, Abram. If you simply believe in me, turn to me, trust in me, put your hope in me. Remember it from the Gospel of John, all the synonyms we use for belief. Walk, thirst, drink, obey, follow after. Abram, just look to me, and I will count your faith as if you were 100% righteous. Guys, we sang it this morning. We proclaimed it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the way Romans 4 tells it. Again, this is Paul writing about this story. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works or made right by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God for what does the scripture say? Abram, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you're working for your salvation this morning, and I don't even know in what form that comes through. It may just be a straight-up theological heresy. If I do good things, then God will get to the end of my life and He'll weigh the good and the bad, and then He'll tell me um, I'm in or I'm out. It, it can be that. It can be that start, but oftentimes it's so much more subtle, isn't it? That we believe if we work and whatever. Value whatever we're placing, our value, our time, our energy, and our effort to make things right with God. God says, I don't count that. The only thing I count on your behalf is faith. Faith in me. Folks, the only way we can be justified before God, the only way we can be made right with God is through faith in his promises. For Abraham, that was faith in his promises. For us, That's faith in his son, Jesus Christ. No other payment will God accept for your sins. No other payment will God accept for your unrighteousness or my unrighteousness. But here's the great news. No other payment is needed. No other payment is needed. And so Abraham believes, he trusts in God that God is going to do this. Abraham, listen, full of doubts wrestling struggling but but where do we go with our doubts the only place we can go to him to him god god i have doubts but i know you're bigger than those your word is true you are true and what we're going to find in this last part of the text is god is going to show us just how ironclad our salvation truly is so look at verse 8 god has made this promise abraham has placed his faith and yet it's super encouraging to me, even as a justified believer. In verse 8, Abram still has doubts. He said, but oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And if you're God, don't you're just like, Abram, do we have to go over this again? Like one more time? Like, like didn't I just tell you about your son? And didn't I just tell you this? And let, let me just say here, I don't think this is a faithless doubting on Abraham's part. I don't think this is a fist of God like God, just show me or, or else. If you don't do this, I'm not going to follow you. That's not Abram's posture here. I think Abram's posture is just like we learned in the Gospel of John with the disciples and Peter. What did they say? God, we believe, but what? Help our unbelief. See, and, and, and when that's our posture from a humble heart, God, I want to believe. I want to trust. I want to lean on you. I don't want to doubt. Can I just encourage you this morning saying that's the Holy Spirit? That's the Holy Spirit moving. That's the Holy Spirit working. That's the Holy Spirit drawing. But he wants to draw your attention to what God does here. So let's look at the text. And this can be a little bit bizarre, but let's try to work our way through it. And I think as you'll see it, what's happening here, you will be profoundly, I believe, encouraged and hope-filled. God says, okay, Abram, let me tell you what I'm going um, to do. To assure you of my, cert- uh, to give you certainty about the assurance of my promises, you and I are going to make a covenant. Now, what is a covenant? It's, we don't, we, we're familiar with the word contract, but we're not so familiar with the word covenant. Covenant is simply like a life or death bond made in blood. Okay, life or death bond. So, so when you were little, Dudes, girls, whoever, you were blood brothers with someone, what would you do? Something completely unsanitary with the blood in your hands, right? So, so it's just it's a life and death bond. You would rub your, rub your blood together, and all the millennials are like, say what? Okay, you get what I'm going. Okay, the life or death bond made in blood. Do you know that the word covenant literally means to cut? And the reason it means to cut, because to signify or solidify a covenant what would happen is what God asked Abraham to do, or Abram to do here. He says, Abram, I want you to get animals, and he lists them out here. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut them up, divide them in half, but not these other two things. They're too small to cut in half, but, but, but deal with those two. And I want you to line up these halves of these animals in a row, in a path, like in two lines. And what would happen in a covenant making ceremony is that the inferior party, okay, in other words, the one that was pledging their fidelity and allegiance to their Lord, they would cut these animals in half and then walk down the aisle between these these cut pieces. And, and, And the message was very clear. So be it to me as these pieces are if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain. So be it to me cut me up, destroy me, put my body out, don't bury it, let the birds pick over it, which is kind of an illusion of what hap- what's happening in this text where, where Abram is chasing these birds away. So be it to me, let me be torn to pieces if I don't fulfill the oath of this covenant. So making a covenant was a really big deal. This was very common in the ancient Near East. It was very common biblically. We see it in Jeremiah 34. And so Abram does what he's told. Look back at the text. He lines them up, and I'm sure as the inferior party, do you know what I mean by that? As the needy party, it's now expected that Abram, of course, will walk through the pieces. So God has just given him a promise. The word of God's enough, right? And so Abram will will commit his trust and fidelity to the Lord by walking down the middle of, this, these pieces that are on both sides of the path, because he's the one committing to be faithful, right? But what happens next is just utterly astounding. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That had to be Freaky Friday, right? Okay, I mean, I don't know what exactly that looked like, But you've got to remember, the Israelites were reading this 400 years later. And they would have immediately known what this was. Because how was God leading them around at night? With a pillar of fire. So as the lights go down and this fire makes its way, in whatever way that is happening through these pieces, it would have been very clear to them, oh, God is walking through the middle of the pieces. Oh, this is the manifestation of God's presence. And the meaning would have been immediately crystal clear to them. What is God saying to to Abram? So be it to me, Abram. So be it to me if I don't come through. So be it to me Christian if I will not fulfill my faithful promises to you. So be it to me if I will not complete the work that I have begun in you and you may say well well pastor Paul that's impossible God can't die. Precisely the point. That's how certain the believers assurance in Jesus Christ is. There's nothing higher that God can swear by but himself. That's how ironclad his promise to Abram is. That's how ironclad his promise through Abram to bless you is. Now, what is God guaranteeing to Abram in this passage? On one hand, there is the land. God's guaranteeing Abram the land. He tells him that the national boundaries of Israel are going to extend this way and that way to the Euphrates. And, and this is most likely took place under the reign of David. So David had a a dynasty, his influence extended far and wide. But clearly, clearly, there's something much deeper, even more important than the land that's being referenced here. Notice what God tells him. He says, Abram, know for certain, this is verse 13, your offspring will be sojourner in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Of course, he's talking about the exodus from Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. Do you know that that story is the pattern, the type, the scripture writers continually reference when it comes to redemption in the life of the believer, in the life of God's people? God here is guaranteeing much more to Abram and into you than land. He's guaranteeing you the promise of redemption. God is saying as I surely as I will bring my people out of Egypt, believer, I will rescue you from sin. Because of the promise that I made to Abram that I would bless his posterity and that the Messiah would come, and this Messiah, the seed of Abraham would be Jesus Christ himself. You see the significance now, and this just gives these stories a whole new light, don't they, when we think about God's covenant with us, that in Luke 22, when Jesus has the disciples gathered in the upper room, and he's breaking the bread, and he's pouring the wine, what does Jesus say? He says, behold, this is a new what? Covenant in my blood and we may say, but, but, but where are the pieces that are going to be cut? Where is the animal that's going to be broken in two? And then we remember John the Baptist's words to, about Jesus. Behold what the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is telling him, I'm going to ratify my covenant with you, people of God. And the way that I'm going to ratify that covenant is that I am going to be the one that's cut. It's going to be my body that's broken into pieces. It's going to be my blood that is shed as a sacrificial atonement for sin for you. And when we understand the gospel impact of this, we understand that he who did not spare his own son, come on, Christian, how much more is he going to spare you who he gave up his son to die for? How could he abandon you now? See, I don't, those of you who don't know Christ, there's an encouraging, there's something amazingly encouraging about this. One, we have to ask, well, why didn't Abram and his heirs immediately possess the land? Look back at the text for a second. I've never, never really noticed this, never really understood it. But he says that, uh, verse 13, and then the Lord said, or verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards uh, they shall come out with great possessions, verse 15. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Now listen, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? God says, I'm not bringing judgment on the Amorites yet because I'm patient, because it's my kindness that leads to repentance. I'm giving them not just a year, 10 years, a decade, 100 years. I'm giving the Amorites four generations to turn back to me. And when they don't, then I will bring judgment. Church, I don't know how long God has given you. I don't know how long God has given me. But I do know that he has made a covenant with all of those who will simply turn to him in faith. He has cut his son. As Galatians 13 says, it says that he has poured a curse out on him and that we receive his righteousness on our play in our behalf if we simply turn and trust in him. Paul says in Romans 2, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Because if you're doubting today, if you're struggling with assurance today, can I just encourage you that the struggle is an indication of God's sanctifying work of grace in your heart. I worry sometimes when we don't struggle. That's when I really worry. People who take things for granted, people who don't wrestle, don't think, just kind of go through life in autopilot. But if you're really wrestling today It's God's kindness that he wants to remind you this morning of the eternal covenant that he made in shadowy form with Abram, but eternally through his son, Jesus Christ. As we come to the table this morning, folks, what an opportunity not only to remember that covenant, but to renew ourselves in it. When we come to the table, we are saying, this body, this blood— is the covenant that Jesus has made for me, for my soul, and I now place my faith and I follow him. I ask you just for a moment or two to prepare your hearts as we come to the table, and I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper.